Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, November 9th, 2023, the 1023rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to pick up today on something we discussed yesterday, and that is what our default assumptions should be when it comes to election fraud and the results of elections as reported to us. How should we react when we hear something that strikes us as strange or unlikely or maybe even impossible? And I was discussing the results in Kentucky 
where Democrat incumbent governor Andy Bashir won over McConnell protege and Trump endorsed Daniel Cameron, the former attorney general of Kentucky, a black Republican by five points, while the Republican secretary of state, the incumbent and a new Republican attorney general, both won by 21 and 16 points, respectively. People went out, voted for the Democrat communist governor, and then down ticket voted Republican. And that was true enough to account for a 26 point swing between the results of the governor's race and the results of the secretary of state's race on the same ballot. And all of this in a state that Donald Trump won by 25 points in 2020. We are supposed to believe all of this because Andy Bashir is the progeny of a dynasty political family in Kentucky. Just the power of the Bashir name, the Bashir brand, was enough to get 26% of Kentuckians, I think that's what they're called, to vote Democrat for governor and Republican down ticket in a state that Trump won by 25 just a few years ago. Now, I want to be sure that I am absolutely clear about the claim I'm making here. I am not saying that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt or can prove right now that the results in Kentucky, as reported, are the product of election fraud. I cannot make that positive assertion and back that up with evidence that would say convince a courtroom or a group of reasonable skeptics. And it would be very difficult for me to do that because they'd never let me check. The claim I'm making is that when we see a result this strange or unlikely or potentially impossible, we should assume that it's because the election systems are rigged and wide open to manipulation. Now, there are people out there who could look at the overwhelming mountains of evidence that that claim is true, that our elections are rigged and wide open and vulnerable to manipulation and still declare that they are unconvinced. But the thing is, those people's opinions do not matter. They cannot matter. Our standard cannot be making an argument to the complete satisfaction of someone who is skeptical because they don't want to really understand an issue. They have already assumed a logically impossible position. Their argument rests solely on the authority of election officials and media types and politicians, people who report the numbers, the tellers of the numbers, the tellers of the numbers must be true and honest. They must have great integrity. All of these things are assumed for no reason. At best, it is an argument from authority. At worst, it's an argument from terrible authority that is proven time and time again to be unreliable. There is no other backup there. It's just the appeal to authority. And because that authority is so dominant culturally and because everybody has been conditioned to listen to that authority and assume that that authority is telling the truth 
All the most basic and obvious questions simply do not get asked. People say, well, that is an insane result. That seems like something that could obviously never happen. And the truth is, it's not like Andy Bashir is particularly popular in Kentucky. He's not some hero. He's not beloved by Republicans. He's not a centrist who a state of moderate Republicans will go out to elect even while voting only Republicans down ticket. It's an absurd result, an absurd outcome, and the explanations for how anything like that could have happened are totally lacking. The explanations are Andy Bashir is from a dynasty political family, and he did a great job handling COVID in 2020. And I've been looking for the arguments. I have asked on Twitter, what is the convincing argument? Who is making this case? And then, of course, you get answers that depend on the elections already being free and fair, safe and secure, and the reported results reflecting the will and intent of the voter. Like someone will say, oh, it's because all the mail-in ballots came in and you know mail-in ballots favor Democrats. Well, wait a second, what? Mail-in ballots are the easiest form of voting to defraud. We know how that system works telling us that Andy Bashir's win was on the back of mail-in ballots or late arriving ballots or any of that should only cause normal people to be more skeptical about the integrity of the election. And we are told this explains the question you asked. That question has now been answered. If you don't accept the answer, we're going to call you a conspiracy theorist. Think about what's happening here. Andy Bashir wins by five over Daniel Cameron. The Republican Secretary of State wins by 21, a 26 point difference on the same ballots. Republicans who voted Republican down ticket nonetheless went out and voted for Democrat Communist Governor Andy Bashir. That's an extraordinary result. How did that happen? Oh, it's because political dynasty family handled COVID really well and mail in ballots. I mean, hey, it worked in 2020. Why wouldn't it work now? People have to believe all of those things or else they're conspiracy theorists. And everybody has learned that by now. And to make matters worse, of course, you have three years of Con Inc. and the GOP establishment and elite. And of course, all the Ron DeSantis fans saying that election fraud could have never happened. We have the rightful winners of these elections. Even if elections were rigged and manipulated in some places, there's just nothing we can do because the courts refuse to hear it. Our only response could ever possibly be attempting to win another rigged election in the future. And if we can't win, we're going to default to saying that the elections aren't rigged forever. Do you understand? We know the elections are rigged. We're going to say that they're not rigged. The only way to fix them being rigged is to win a rigged election. And when we lose it, knowing the elections were rigged, we're going to say that they weren't rigged again. That is the Republican establishment strategy, because all of those people have denied election fraud, even though it has put our country in its current state. They're not going to pull back from that. And obviously their controlled opposition on the uniparty left is not going to pull back from that. So we have this percentage of the country that is intentionally covering up the basic obvious truths about our elections. We know 
how they're doing it. We know why they're doing it. They will tell us how and why they're doing it, saying things like you need to move on or we're going to destroy the institutions if you keep doing this or Trump can't win. So we need someone else. So we have a history of strange or unlikely or improbable or impossible election results. We have evidence from thousands and thousands of sources, people who have filled out affidavits. We have investigations that have been done in states, counties, localities all around the country over the course of years, consistently finding the same problems, the same type of problems, the same problems from the same sources, and all of that being interconnected. We have no suitable explanation for any of it. No one is allowed to check. And the people who are doing the reporting about these situations to the general public, which is the central narrative we all have to contend with, are all liars themselves, provable liars themselves. So it should be assumed not only that strange or unlikely or improbable or impossible results are due somehow to manipulation, but that all results are due somehow to manipulation. Because again, elections have consequences. They're important. There is a value to who wins the elections. There is certainly a value to who wins elections in the eyes of the corporations and the donors, the lobbyists, the people involved with funding elections in the first place. It turns out there is absolutely no reason to believe that our elections are ever legitimately decided. But like many of the obvious and most important truths about our world, people don't want to admit that because that means we need to begin making uncomfortable changes. It means we have to work a lot harder to verify what we are told when the matter at hand is something of great importance, like who gets to tell you how your life will be lived? And that is the power that the government is trying to amass right now. They hold a great deal of it already. And if that sounds like I'm exaggerating, think back to 2020 and think about what they made you do or made your peers do, your family, your friends, your community, your business, your state. That didn't happen by accident. The government did that. There was too much to verify too quickly. Too many people accepted information from authority and went along with it. And it became a fight that could not be won on a quick enough timeline to be able to prevent the disasters that ensued. And we saw essentially the same outcome after the 2020 election. It was obvious immediately to anyone who had been paying attention that the election was going to be stolen in advance and was stolen on the night of the election. The results, as reported the next day, were ridiculous. It took four days, and then the television announced that Joe Biden had won. And here we are three years later with a lot of people unable to admit to the obvious truth about what happened. The people who checked for themselves knew it was all a lie. The people who take their information from authority accepted what they were told, did as they were told, and supported what they were told. They knew they'd be punished for getting out of line. They knew they'd be incentivized for going along with it. They responded to the incentives, and many of them are still in the same position they were back then. Because they don't want to admit that they're wrong, they require evidentiary standards for changing their mind that they never 
required for forming the belief in the first place. They didn't require any standard at all other than it was said by people they trust on TV. And here we are. They still think that you are not even allowed to suggest that something in the election system may have gone wrong upon seeing strange, unlikely, improbable or impossible results, because that would be a conspiracy theory. And so they ask for evidence and proof and push the burden on to you. And during that time between when the stolen election first occurs and when this sort of person actually has enough proof to be satisfied that they are wrong, which is never, the illegitimate government remains in place. And throughout that time, people of good faith and goodwill who seem not to be able to understand the actual dynamic at play here, waste all their time trying to provide proof to these people while these people suggest that what is being provided does not constitute proof at all. They will say it about 2,000 different varieties of proof. They will call each one into some level of question or doubt. They'll say something's been debunked. So it's not on them. It's about Whoever has debunked it, they can't get in trouble for being wrong in that instance. That's been debunked. There's no proof. They go through the entire thing, dismiss each and every one of the 2000 pieces of evidence and say, well, there's no proof of election fraud. And until there is proof, I'm going to stay on this side of things. I'm going to align with the government and the TV who lie to everybody all the time because I just haven't seen the proof. We need to break fully out of this paradigm where the only time we are allowed to say something that is obviously true, that we are observing, that we reason is when it meets an evidentiary standard of people who are wrong about everything all the time and constantly lying to advance their own power. That is an astoundingly bad strategy. The problem in this instance is that you happen to be on the right side of the issue, but you are still thinking in the wrong paradigm. You are allowing the burden of proof to be shifted onto you just because the other side speaks from authority and that authority is still culturally respected and it is understood that that should be the default explanation for something. You know the authority is wrong, but you bow to the logical fallacy because within this total inversion, that logical fallacy, the argument from authority becomes not a logical fallacy at all. It becomes literally how truth is created and verified. It is true when the authority says it, and unless you can prove what the authority has said is wrong based on other information from the same authority, it remains true forever. Now that, my friends, is insane. Now the problem a lot of people have with this is that they're not comfortable existing in a zero-trust informational environment. They are accustomed to the understanding that there is a right answer to every question that can be asked about a range of issues, however many are brought up. Thousands, tens of thousands, millions of issues every day, new events, new facts. And we got to know about all of them or else we can't make our way through the day. How are we going to know about them? Well, we better just look to authority because we're not going to be able to figure it all out for ourselves. 
We don't want to go around with people thinking that we don't know anything about microbiology or gender transition hormones or Formula One racing. Just think about all the subjects that people talk about. We need to know everything about each and every one of them or else we can't make our way through the day. What if one of those subjects comes up and we don't know anything? Well, then we turn to authority and do what the authority says. And it turns out there are just way too many issues and they're all too complicated. So we can't really figure out any of them. We'd better just listen to authority all the time. And that's exactly where we are right now. The problem is that even people who understand that these systems of authority are not worthy of the trust we put in them still fall into this pattern when it comes to subjects they just don't know about or don't feel confident in discussing. The question at the base of all of this is what do we do in a situation where there is zero trustworthy information? We have a situation of zero trust and all the information we have comes from sources for which we have zero trust. How do we operate in a zero trust environment? What's rational? What's responsible? What's moral? And I think the first question to ask yourself is, do I need to form a belief about this? Often you'll find the answer is no. And so then the best course of action is not to form a belief. Just be like, oh, that's interesting. That's information among other information. I have this piece of information given to me from this source. I don't know whether it's true or false. I'll just hold on to that. I'll keep it in the back of my head, maybe sometime in the future. I find new information that either confirms or denies this piece of information, but I'm just going to leave it in question for now. And then you move on. Why should we go about forming a belief and then potentially forming other beliefs based on that one if we don't know whether the information we're getting is trustworthy or not? If there's nothing demanding that we form a belief, you just abstain from believing anything. Take in the information, lock it away, move on. But in a situation where it actually matters whether you're right or wrong and whether or not you're forming a proper belief, you should be able to develop some sort of metric to be able to help you decide which is the rational, justifiable, moral course of action. And then you have to begin asking yourself about trade-offs and consequences. If I form the proper belief, what is the incentive And if I form a wrong belief, what is the downside of that belief formation? And you can weigh that on both sides. So if I see this election result in Kentucky and I assume that the election results as reported are correct and I'm right, well, then nothing happens. But if I assume that the election results are correct and they're not correct and the wrong winner has been announced then I am supporting an illegitimate candidate being brought into political office to make decisions not only for me, but for everyone in my family, my friend circle, my community, maybe my state or my country. And one of the things that illegitimate politician might do while in office is make it even easier to steal elections the next time. If you play this out over time, we could find ourselves in a very, very bad situation, a situation where Many of the politicians across the country at every level are actually illegitimate and they are implementing an agenda the people of the country don't want. And that agenda is actually wreaking havoc in people's lives. That sounds kind of bad. Now, if I assume 
that the elections are not legitimate and that fraud is producing these strange and unlikely and improbable and impossible outcomes, and I am right, well, then maybe we have prevented the regime from installing this illegitimate politician who is going to be implementing an agenda that the people do not support in any way. That is very important. That's a pretty significant benefit. And what's the downside? What if I assume that the election results are the product of fraud and I turn out to be wrong? Well, then the downside would only be on me and my reputation. And while we are being told by systems of authority that that actually harms our democracy by decreasing trust in the system, the opposite is obviously true. Going through and checking the election system with full transparency and examining each and every part of it, finding out and telling the public what is wrong with the system, and then coming to find out that there actually was no problem in this individual case, that in itself provides a benefit to society. That actually strengthens trust in our democracy and in our institutions, in our election system. Simply doubting the system and the information received from authority not only has great benefits, it actually strengthens the system while drastically reducing the downside consequences of making a mistake. Whereas assuming that the system is working perfectly without any reason or any justification to believe that introduces maximum risk for almost no benefit. The benefit only being that people in the system of authority will congratulate you, pat you on the back lightly for helping to increase trust in the institutions. And how Orwellian does that sound? And we are in a zero trust information environment. You should not trust anything you are told on TV or by the media or by anyone else. Which media figure would you say you trust? You shouldn't trust anybody out there to always know what they're talking about and have the ability to always tell you the truth. I don't want you to place that kind of trust in me. You can trust me to try to tell you the truth to the best of my ability, but that's about it. You shouldn't be making life decisions based on Chris Paul said so. Think about the places we're being led because we believe that we must trust someone despite understanding we are in a zero trust information environment. I mentioned the COVID stuff. Think about the vaccines. Think about the election fraud. Think about the Ukraine war. Think about exactly what people lent their support to based on very bad information because they chose to trust someone in a zero trust environment and then eventually found out they were wrong. And it's not like this stuff is up for dispute at this point. People were wrong. They were wrong for a reason. They were wrong because they accepted information from authority, knowing that authority was bad, but they thought they had to believe something. They had to pick a side because it was so important that they couldn't actually verify it for themselves. Last night in the fake debate for the fake primary, which we will talk about later on, there was a question from a man named Matthew Brooks at the Republican Jewish Coalition who said that we must see this as a moment of moral clarity. Most Orwellian thing I've ever heard. What does that mean? Everyone needs to get on the same page and support the same thing. 
because it is so morally clear what must be done here. You just have to listen to us. You have to do it now. If you doubt us at all, you're a bigot. You got to get on the same page right now or else you're a bad person. Sorry, I know you don't understand it. You're going to have to listen to us because this is a moment of moral clarity. If you don't go along with us, you're immoral. It's rare that we are told so clearly about what we are expected to do and expected to believe and why. But this is the paradigm which we find ourselves locked into. And so with that in mind, let's consider a report from today in an outlet called Jewish Insider. This is tweeted out by that outlet's editor, Josh Krauschar. And he's summarizing a piece from an outlet called HonestReporting.com. Reuters, the Associated Press, and CNN, all of which published photos from Palestinian photographers taken in the first hours of the October 7th Hamas attacks, scrambled overnight to distance themselves from allegations that they, as well as the New York Times, had advanced warning of the terror attacks in Israel, Jewish Insider's executive editor Melissa Weiss reports. The images represent some of the earliest footage of the attacks and were taken by Palestinian photographers who accompanied Hamas terrorists into Israel on October 7th. A report published yesterday by NGO Honest Reporting found that at least four photographers whose work appeared in the outlets were on the scene in the initial hours of the attack and called into question the journalistic integrity of the photographers, whom the report notes just happened to appear early in the morning at the border without prior coordination with the terrorists. After the report's release, a photograph of Hassan Eslaya, whose photos were used by CNN and the AP in their coverage of the attacks, posing with Hamas official Yahya Sinwar, the mastermind of the October 7th attacks, began to circulate. CNN said it had severed ties with Eslaya, but said it did not have, quote, any reason to doubt the journalistic accuracy of the work he has done for us, end quote. Reuters said it, quote, did not have a prior relationship, end quote, with two of the named freelancers and, quote, categorically denies that Reuters had prior knowledge of the attack or that we embedded journalists with Hamas on October 7th, end quote. The AP also denied prior knowledge of the attack, saying its role, quote, is to gather information on breaking news events around the world, wherever they happen, even when those events are horrific and cause mass casualties, end quote. The New York Times has not, at the time of this printing, issued a statement on the issue. Israel's National Public Diplomacy Directorate, which is part of the prime minister's office, demanded immediate action, calling the photojournalists, quote, accomplices in crimes against humanity, whose, quote, actions were contrary to professional ethics. The government press office sent a letter to the bureau chiefs of the AP, Reuters, CNN and The New York Times asking for clarifications. J.I.'s Lahav Harkov reports, and J.I. again is Jewish insider. Former Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who sits in Israel's war cabinet, took the condemnation a step further with an implicit threat, saying on X, formerly Twitter, journalists found to have known about the massacre and still chose to stand as idle bystanders while children were slaughtered are no different than terrorists and should be treated as such, end quote. HonestReporting.com, the NGO, 
who initially reported this and brought the evidence that they believe proves this case, covered it this way. On October 7th, Hamas terrorists were not the only ones who documented the war crimes they had committed during their deadly rampage across southern Israel. Some of their atrocities were captured by Gaza-based photojournalists working for the Associated Press and Reuters news agencies whose early morning presence at the breached border area raises serious ethical questions. What were they doing there so early on what would ordinarily have been a quiet Saturday morning? Was it coordinated with Hamas? Did the respectable wire services, which published their photos, approve of their presence inside enemy territory together with the terrorist infiltrators? Did the photojournalists who freelance for other media, like CNN and the New York Times, notify these outlets? Judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping, and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border has been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. Now, because it is catnip to normie conservatives to always go after the media, and by the way, the media generally always deserves it, and because they are dead set on making the case that the global state propaganda media, the media mouthpieces of the global regime are somehow anti-Semitic despite being owned by Jews, they believe that they had a real winning narrative here that promotes multiple aspects of their narrative agenda. And we'll come back around to that in just a second. The New York Times today put out this statement. The accusation that anyone at the New York Times had advanced knowledge of the Hamas attacks or accompanied Hamas terrorists during the attacks is untrue and outrageous. It is reckless to make such allegations, putting our journalists on the ground in Israel and Gaza at risk. The Times has extensively covered the October 7th attacks and the war with fairness, impartiality, and an abiding understanding of the complexities of the conflict. The advocacy group Honest Reporting has made vague allegations about several freelance photojournalists working in Gaza, including Youssef Massoud. Though Youssef was not working for the Times on the day of the attack, he has since done important work for us. There is no evidence for honest reporting's insinuations. Our review of his work shows that he was doing what photojournalists always do during major news events, documenting the tragedy as it unfolded. We also want to speak in defense of freelance journalists working in conflict areas, whose jobs often require them to rush into danger to provide firsthand witness accounts and to document important news. This is the essential role of a free press in wartime. We are gravely concerned that unsupported accusations and threats to freelancers endangers them and undermines the work that serves the public interest. Noah Pollack of the Washington Free Beacon responded to that statement, writing, notice what this statement does not say that the New York Times's photographer didn't have advanced notice of the Hamas attack. Quite an omission. It also says New York Times, which ran headlines falsely accusing Israel of bombing a hospital, has covered the war with fairness and impartiality, LOL. Now, Pollock is making the distinction that the New York Times said it did not have advanced knowledge of the Hamas attacks, but did not say that this freelance photographer who occasionally works for them did not have advanced knowledge. Now, there are a couple interesting aspects of this that are worth noting. 
One is the interplay between intelligence organizations and media organizations. And in this particular case, that matters even a little bit more because we know the relationship between intelligence organizations and terrorist organizations. So we have an interplay of three things that we already know to be linked in many cases. The fact that the journalists were already there and embedded and on the ground and able to film these attacks indicates that they almost definitely had prior knowledge of the attacks, or at least that something was going on and did not bother warning anybody. And that is the cause of the freak out today. But it's strange that people who are pushing the war agenda for Israel, the very, very pro-Israel people out there who just want to see all of Gaza raised. They want Palestinians to be glassed, as they were calling it a few weeks ago. Those people are going hard after this because they know that they'll get a win by attacking the media and they can also frame the media as anti-Semitic, which can be used as cover anytime there are reports of Israelis actually killing a whole lot of innocent civilians. And that is what's happening, regardless of what your opinions are about what you think happened on October 7th and since, and which side you think is morally right or wrong, the reports of civilian casualties inflicted by Israel are numerous, and they're not being denied. They're being rationalized and justified by those on the pro-Israel side. And so that's the primary discussion being had within the controlled opposition dynamic. But I think the more important discussion concerns the realization that there was foreknowledge of these events, not only by the attackers, by Egyptian intelligence and by Israeli intelligence. There was also foreknowledge by these people associated with the media. So a whole lot of people knew about the paragliding go-karts in advance, but didn't actually alert anybody not the people who would have been attacked by these paragliding go-karts and not the world through social media or through major media outlets and the intelligence organizations who knew about it didn't end up doing anything to stop it. And so the paragliding go-karts were able to invade, somehow evading the most magnificent defense forces in the history of the world across the world's most secure border. And now... We have to go to World War III, and if we don't, in this moment of moral clarity, you're a bigot. Now, we are only one month into this narrative. We are 21 months, almost, into the Ukraine narrative. And what have we seen over the course of those 21 months? We have seen that narrative fall apart almost completely, and Vivek Ramaswamy went pretty hard after that point last night in the debate, and I will play that clip in just a few minutes. That Ukraine narrative has fallen apart almost completely. And that should matter a lot for the people who spent months with a Ukraine flag emoji next to their screen name on their social media profiles. The people who hung Ukraine flags off the front of their houses and put Ukraine flag bumper stickers on their cars. The people who supported transnational global regime businesses with their little Ukraine fundraising efforts. The people who put the comedic actor Volodymyr Zelensky 
into photo shoots and magazine articles and invited him to speak in front of the Congress. The people who said that the Nazi battalions who've been there for 80 years and received funding from the U.S. and training from the CIA weren't actually Nazis because the comedic actor is said to be Jewish. What does it mean that they supported all of that for reasons that no one even takes seriously anymore? And it's not like this is the only issue where people have accepted opinion from authority, adopted the prescribed belief, promoted the proposed reaction, and then found themselves in a position of moral culpability, whether or not they want to admit it, for terrible consequences and fallout in the real world as a result of what they've promoted. And again, they're not going to admit it. They're not going to find themselves partly responsible in some sense for promoting the United States sending all sorts of money over to Ukraine as tens or hundreds of thousands of people died in the interest of winning a war that they had no chance of winning. They're just going to go on with their lives and they will employ the same decision-making process again. And we see it happening every single day, even for people who understand that we are in a zero trust information environment. You can't know one way or the other. And people still think they have to form a belief and that the safest belief to form is the one that they are being told to form because everyone else is forming it. Not only will you be on that island virtually alone, but everyone else on that island with you, they're all bigots, just like you are. So there was all this foreknowledge of these attacks. No one was warned about any of it. And here we are a month later. We still don't know how it's possible that the intelligence agencies with foreknowledge were unable to stop any of these attacks across what is ostensibly the most secure border in the world. And despite not being able to get answers to those questions, we are still supposed to support absolutely whatever is proposed or else we are isolated or else we are bigots. And the event in question we have been told is Israel's 9-11, as if none of that story has fallen apart. So how would we have reacted if we were properly respecting the zero trust information environment we found ourselves in a month ago when all of this was first going down, if we refused to accept the belief from authority and turned out to be wrong, we would be accused of disbelieving the media and these sources of purportedly authoritative information, and we would face claims that it's because of our anti-Semitism, our anti-Jewish bigotry that we did not believe the story. And depending on how sensitive we are to hearing that for the 17,000th time, maybe it would really hurt our feelings. But there would be very little real-world impact. I suppose they would argue that us failing to support them quickly enough would delay American support to the region coming in from the fake president, who they all pretend is the real president, of course. And at the end of some hypothetical causal chain, then we would be responsible for more suffering of the Israeli people. That is the case they would probably make. 
But if we doubted the main story given to us from authority and turned out to be right and our doubts were justified as they have been across the entire range of other issues that we can point to, most particularly the Ukraine story that we were just told 21 months ago, then we would have properly abstained from supporting a military effort that would result in countless deaths and unbelievable destruction on bad information. And perhaps our protest against all of that may actually preserve the lives of innocent civilians, and it may protect the property and homes of innocent people. And what about the alternative? If we had believed the central narrative, the official story as given to us from these systems of authority right at the very beginning and been right, then we would still be probably going overboard as all of these people are in terms of what the response would be. And if we had been wrong about that while going along with it, then we would be downright evil for the umpteenth time in a row. Knowing that the intelligence services knew in advance and now knowing that media organizations and others knew in advance and that no one was warned and that no one stopped this despite all the security forces, despite the secure border, there is basically no justification for thinking that the official story as told could ever possibly turn out true. It'll probably only get worse from here as we go on and learn more. And by giving our consent to the official story, knowing that we are in a zero trust informational environment, we have made ourselves morally complicit in atrocities once again. It's not that we are abstaining and can be blamed for being overly skeptical when receiving information from authority that we know to be bad and dishonest with an agenda. It's that we have positively committed to and promoted mass death and destruction over something we turned out ultimately to be completely and totally wrong about and something we could have known we were wrong about at the beginning. And why does this happen? Because we believe it is our responsibility to form beliefs about everything, to take a side on everything rather than refusing to accept a belief communicated by authority until that position has been suitably substantiated. A paragliding go-kart attack across the world's most secure border that was known about in advance by the attackers, the media, and the intelligence services of the side being attacked, and all of that justifying World War III is an extraordinary claim and one that we cannot just accept in a zero-trust information environment. We need to respect the zero-trust information environment, especially when the stakes are the highest, when the issue about which you're forming belief really, really matters in your life and other people's lives. And it does in these situations. And we need to understand that. What is the impact of us giving our belief and giving our consent to these causes that we are told we must support by authority that lies to us constantly. How long will we go on like this? And how long can we afford to go on like this? When we're talking about a situation that involves mass casualties and destruction and death, then we're talking about a situation where if we are wrong, then what we are supporting is genocide. That's not something I would be 
comfortable supporting after seeing a few pieces of content online from people I know to be liars about every other issue of consequence for years in a row. And the same thing is true, of course, for election fraud. And rather than understanding the zero trust information environment and the trade-offs that must be considered when forming belief in a zero trust information environment, we just continue going full speed ahead. And so let's talk about the fake debate in the fake primary that was hosted by and broadcast on NBC News, where all the questions that will be asked assume the truth of each and every official story that comprises the central narrative and the candidates by and large will agree that all of that is true and then have a discussion about the truth of stories we already know to be fake. We have a mainstream media debate for mainstream media candidates asking mainstream media questions and getting mainstream media answers about mainstream media fake news stories. And we are meant to take all of this seriously and discuss the substance of the debate. Naturally, I was watching the reaction on Twitter as the debate was taking place and the DeSantis simps were out there talking about how Ron gave this or that answer. And this was very serious. Oh, that was a good question. And what a good answer supplied by Ron. Oh, there's so much substance in this debate. And we are supposed to take all of that seriously and talk about the substance. Oh, Ron gave this answer about that issue. Ron was really connecting with the standard issue villagers down there in Normieville. Let's show how serious he is. But the event was not serious. It was a clown show. It was the least serious of the three fake debates so far. In the last, well, just over a year, Ron DeSantis has lost a debate to Charlie Crist in the governor's race in Florida last year. He has lost three debates, not only to the people on stage, but to Donald Trump, who has not participated in any of the debates. And in a few weeks, he is going to lose another debate to Gavin Newsom. Ron DeSantis is not a good debater. Ron DeSantis is a politician of mediocre capabilities and virtually no ideas who for a time seemed confident and like a strong leader on television while the TV was presenting him as such and everyone else was constantly talking about how great Ron DeSantis was. The comedian and podcaster Russell Brand put up a poll on X, formerly Twitter, asking who the winner of last night's debate was. The options he presented were Donald Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis wasn't even an option on that list. And the results so far have Donald Trump up 58%, to Vivek's 37%, with 5% remaining for Nikki Haley. It wasn't even worth asking if Ron DeSantis won the debate, because everyone who watched it knows Ron DeSantis didn't win the debate. The only people who don't understand that are the people who are in love with Ron DeSantis, because they believe that Ron DeSantis is the policy of Donald Trump without that abrasive personality. He's Donald Trump, but without the problems. He's the Donald Trump that they can present to their liberal friends without their liberal friends' heads exploding. 
In fact, some of their liberal friends are even willing to jump on board with Ron DeSantis because they know that the Joe Biden thing didn't work, but they don't want to actually admit that they were wrong about Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is not a serious candidate. He's not a serious debater. He is an absolute zero on the debate stage. His responses, like Nikki Haley's, are canned and rehearsed, and he is robotic when he is delivering them. When he's not answering, he's looking around at the other candidates and making the weirdest, worst faces that anyone has ever seen. Each and every one of these debates has supplied footage of Ron DeSantis making terrible faces that make him look just as bad, if not worse, than his boots with the lifts in them. Last night's debate was not serious and should not be seen as serious. It should not be analyzed as serious because it was not serious. The substance isn't worth discussing because the whole thing is a charade. Again, last night was the most embarrassing of the three debates and all of the debates have been embarrassing. It seems like the only person who even understands what's happening in those debates is Vivek Ramaswamy, who uses the platform to create separation between himself and the other candidates. He understands that the other candidates on that stage have made absolutely no impact. Ron DeSantis was supposedly the GOP's next rising star and his career has been ruined. And again, it's always worth mentioning that the Ron thing could be a kayfabe op. Sure, it could be a pro-Trump red team op. Maybe they are just trying to make Donald Trump look good, waste all the donor money, expose all the rhinos. I get the rationale 100 percent. And that interpretation may ultimately turn out to be correct. But if that interpretation is not correct and this is real, then we need to understand it and analyze it as real. And certainly the people supporting Ron DeSantis are real people. Think of it the same way you think of Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden a fake president? Yep. Did he get 81 million real lawful American votes? No way in hell. But are there real people out there who actually support Joe Biden, who actually have a real world impact on American politics? Yes, there are. So therefore, that aspect must be dealt with and it must be at least understood on their terms in order to properly deal with it. We can't just assume that the Ron thing is an info op and ignore it completely. It would be nice if we could, but we can't. Now, I don't want to be accused of being too biased against Ron. So I am going to share one of Ron's answers in full. This is the first answer from the first question at the debate delivered right to Ron. Please, Ron, tell us why it is necessary to have you be the candidate and not Donald Trump. You can decide for yourself if you think Ron DeSantis is really bringing the heat and giving substantive answers and whether I am being irresponsible or biased in not taking seriously the substance of Ron's answers and going through them issue by issue. Here is Ron DeSantis pitching his candidacy for president of the United States. For all of you, Donald Trump is the first ex-president in more than 100 years to run for the White House again. And he remains popular among Republican primary voters as his legal challenges mount. Governor DeSantis, let me begin with you on this one. Speak to Republican voters who are supporting Donald Trump. Why should you and not him be the Republican nominee to face Joe Biden a year from now? 
This country is in trouble, and the elites that have put us here, they don't care about you. They don't care that you're having to grapple with higher grocery prices or have higher gas prices. They don't care that your family's less secure because of the open border that's allowed drugs and even terrorists to come into this country. Well, I care. I am not going to sit idly by and let this country continue its downward spiral. We need leadership, and we need it now. I'll take the hits. I'll take the arrows. I'll take the slings. Because ultimately, it's not about me. It's about you. I will fight for you. I will make sure to lead this country's revival, and I will win for you and your family. Actions speak louder than words. We don't have time for excuses, and it's not something that we're going to be able to have all these distractions. As a veteran, I will get the job done. Now, if you look where we are now, it's a lot different than where we were in 2016. And Donald Trump's a lot different guy than he was in 2016. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were going to get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing. In Florida, I showed how it's done. One year ago here, we were want a historic victory, including a massive landslide right here in Miami-Dade County. That's how we have to do it. So I promise you this, as the nominee, next November I'll Thank get the go. job done, and as president, I will your, deliver your time is you. up. Let me turn to Ambassador. So that right there is apparently the argument about why you should choose Ron DeSantis rather than Donald Trump. He claims that Donald Trump failed to finish the job on a number of the things he set out to do. And naturally, of course, that only makes sense if you pretend that Donald Trump did not win in 2020 and would not have had a second term to complete those things. And then you would have to ignore the fact that Ron DeSantis is specifically working to cover up the fact that our elections are stolen in this country. He wants people to believe The idea that Donald Trump should be at these debates for some reason, as if he needs to lower himself to arguing with these morons as NBC News asks him questions. And then you just have to buy his vague and dishonest case that he has done all of these spectacular things for Florida that he simply has not done and that he is the most likely to win in a national election a year from now because of an election result last year in Florida that once again assumes our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter, even though we know they don't. And then, of course, you have to overlook the fact that that entire response was scripted and canned and contrived and delivered with Ron's usual level of chip-on-the-shoulder whiny bitchiness Why doesn't anyone pay attention to me? I'm clearly the best. How come none of you understand that? Now, that's how Ron progressed through the rest of the night. He got more questions about more issues and answered them in that same fashion. He had an answer fully prepared. He went out and delivered that answer. He wanted to sound strong and confident, and his goal was to hit on all the points consistently made over and over again throughout online DeSantis stand. So we went through a round of answers about how each candidate 
should be supported rather than Donald Trump. The only one of them who gave even a passable answer was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy, who said that Trump did a good job with everything, but that there's some portion of the country Trump turns off. And at the very least, it's good to have some new, fresh blood in there. Now, I don't believe that case is remotely compelling in any way at all, nor do I think Vivek Ramaswamy is honest or authentic. So his candidacy and his responses mean absolutely nothing to me. It's similar to how I described Ronna Romney yesterday. I don't care if she sounds good. I don't care if she sounds bad. She is irrelevant. She is not a decision point in anything. She is not having enough of an impact to even care about. She is a narrative element among other narrative elements, and Vivek Ramaswamy is the same. Vivek was the only one who understood what was actually going on last night. The point of it was to make narrative impact and separate oneself from the other candidates. He is the only person who did that. There are no other answers from anyone else in the entire debate, even worth discussing, except to make fun of. And most of those examples revolve around Nikki Haley. For whatever reason, NBC's moderators decided to focus the first hour entirely on foreign policy issues, none of which were discussed in any real depth. The candidates were basically just taking opportunities outside of Vivek, of course, to offer Israel their total unconditional support in whatever way Israel could ever possibly want it. Nikki Haley once again reiterated that a foreign country could do with her whatever they pleased. If she was fortunate enough to be president, she would listen to Israel, tell her whatever Israel wanted, and then she would make sure that the American taxpayers would have their indentured servitude extended long enough to provide all of that to Israel whenever they ask. Chris Christie took a question later in the debate about American energy and figured out a way to turn his answer into a promise to Israel to supply them with whatever military force they needed whenever they wanted it. The debate last night was basically four neocon stooges acting as the bachelorettes trying to win a rose from the military industrial complex and Vivek Ramaswamy making fun of them for doing so. This is reportedly the line of the night. And I say reportedly because this is the one everyone's focused on, but I do not think by any stretch that it is the best. And you and the candidates we just heard in this issue on, on what you would tell the prime minister? Not in terms of what I would tell the prime minister, no. In fact, I would go one step further. The founding vision of Israel was based on the idea that they don't want to depend on anybody else's sympathy or direction in defending themselves. So what I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. That's his responsibility. This is our responsibility. That's how we move forward. But I want to be careful to avoid making the mistakes from the neocon establishment of the past. Corrupt politicians in both parties spent trillions, killed millions, made billions for themselves in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, fighting wars that sent thousands of our sons and daughters, people my age, to die in wars that did not advance anyone's interests, adding $7 trillion to our national debt. 
And Joe Biden sold off our foreign policy. Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, got a $5 million bribe from Ukraine. That's why we're sending $200 billion back to that same country. The fact of the matter is the Republican Party is not that much better. You have the likes of Nikki Haley, who stepped down from her time at the UN. Bankrupt or in debt is, was her family. Then she becomes a military contractor. She joins the board of Boeing and otherwise, and is now a multimillionaire. So I think that that's wrong when Republicans do it or Democrats do it. That's the choice we face. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first, or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage. Mr. Ramaswamy, thank you, Senator. Do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? In which case, we've got two of them on stage tonight. And he's talking about Nikki Haley and, of course, Rig D. Meatball, who wears high-heeled cowboy boots thinking he can just get away with it. Oh, they're cowboy boots. No one will ever notice that I'm trying to make myself three inches taller. He can barely walk in those things. And again, more video from last night of Ron DeSantis waddling around the stage unable to properly balance and move smoothly on his high heels. Vivek Ramaswamy absolutely crushed Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis last night, embarrassing them on multiple occasions, and I will share some more of that. But while doing so, he was actually blowing up some pretty significant mainstream media and uniparty narratives. Now again, I want to be clear that I don't think Vivek is honest or authentic. I do not think he's a good candidate for president. I do not think that his debate performances mean that he should be considered for vice president. I do not support Vivek Ramaswamy for any political office whatsoever and do not want to see him put in Donald Trump's cabinet on the basis of his performance in this fake primary either. But as I said before, the point is not to analyze the substance of any of this. The point is to analyze the narrative impact because the narrative impact is more real in its substance than whatever these irrelevant, insignificant also rans are saying on stage in a fake televised debate. Blowing up the neocon establishment and making fun of Dick Cheney and talking about how bad the military-industrial complex has been in guiding our country over the past few decades is actually significant. And doing it on that stage, watching those candidates react in horror to what he's saying, and then showing the country that they are all representatives of exactly that military-industrial complex is actually quite effective. Again, if all of this fake primary is just a pro-Trump red team op, Congratulations to everyone involved. I will be happy to offer my apologies for where I might have said bad things about these awful politicians. If in fact it turns out that they're just playing a part, playing a role, and helping the country understand what the America First agenda is all ultimately about, helping to expose the uniparty right as we expose the uniparty left. If they're all doing that, then great. But if they're not doing that, then that means they are all complicit in the cover up of our stolen elections and in supporting the legitimacy of an obviously fake president who is totally corrupt, totally incompetent and totally demented. And not only do they not get to be president for that, they should be held accountable for their roles. All of these people should be involved in the election integrity effort, not supporting the fake president's legitimacy 
and complaining about the job he's doing. Here is another of the big Vivek Ramaswamy moments from last night. The candidates were all engaged in a discussion about TikTok, said to be the Chinese spyware app for the CCP. And for the most part, they were going after Donald Trump for saying that he was going to ban it, but never being quite able to because the courts stopped him. Now, Vivek is on TikTok, and so Nikki Haley went after him for that. Here is Vivek. I I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy answer is actually... So Vivek Ramaswamy calls Nikki Haley out on her hypocrisy for saying that it's bad that he is using TikTok, despite the fact that she allows her daughter to use TikTok. Vivek is pointing that out. Nikki Haley attempts to slam Vivek in her comeback and says, keep my daughter's name out of your voice. Maybe she was trying to sound like Will Smith at the Oscars. And then he points out her hypocrisy and she says, You're just scum, which I suppose now must count as presidential. I mean, it's being said by Nikki Haley, who is a woman of color and a very serious candidate, a former UN ambassador, a board member of defense contractors, a very serious, more traditional politician saying that someone else on the debate stage is just scum because she's just so offended and so upset. Now, that standard of not talking about politicians, children, does not apply to Donald Trump, and it has never applied to Donald Trump, not even from other Republicans. Everyone's allowed to go after Trump's kids all the time. Everyone knows that, but not Nikki Haley's kids. I mean, this is Nikki Haley. The rules apply to Nikki Haley. The rules don't apply when it's Donald Trump, but only Trump. You can say whatever you want about Trump. You can say whatever you want about Trump's kids, but not Nikki Haley's. And now that Vivek has broken that rule, Nikki Haley gets to break the rules too. And she has to come out as strong and confident. I mean, she's a woman. She can't just respond with grace or intelligence. So she says, you're just scum to the candidate who's been embarrassing her all night in the debate. Nikki Haley is having her turn as the very serious candidate, and she got embarrassed by Vivek Ramaswamy over and over again last night. She was completely taken off her game the entire time. At one point, she actually tried to respond to Vivek's comment about being Dick Cheney in high heels. Here's the response she gave later on after apparently someone on her campaign or close to her fed her a line that they thought was going to just bring down the house. They're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, well, we got two this, of you on stage. The second there, thing so. that I will say is I wear heels. They're not for a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. I mean, what in the world was that? Was she trying to sound like a southern gentle lady? You shouldn't wear them unless you can run in them. And then she's just looking up at the ceiling, wistfully, flirtatiously. Look how charming I am, everybody. And then she says, 
I wear heels. They're not a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. But what in the world does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Does she have a high heel cannon that shoots high heels at anyone Nikki Haley considers scum? Does she hold ammunition in them? Are they like some sort of James Bond spy heels that have a little gun inside them and she can just fire them at the candidates she considers scum? What in the world is she talking about? But it was actually even a little stranger than that because whoever runs her Twitter account, it's clearly not her, tweeted out the same line while Nikki Haley was on the debate stage, which made her look even more inauthentic than she already does, which should be impossible. Now, every candidate on that debate stage is totally inauthentic, and that includes Tim Scott, who would answer questions and then sound like he was running out of batteries. His voice would get lower and slower and less confident over time. And then you have Chris Christie, who seems like he is always offended by something and portrays himself as the guy who's really going to fight back against these big problems. He has the strength and intestinal fortitude to do what others can't, like actually fit entire humans inside their intestines. Now, as I said, most of this debate was pointless. It was substance free. The only substantial takeaways revolve around how some answers Vivek Ramaswamy may have affected public narratives. He went after Ron Romney, of course. He went after NBC News as well. And he took them to task on how they had pushed the Russia hoax. And as I said before, you can always score easy points with Republican normies by going after the media. It was true and relevant and kind of based 10 years ago. And now it's just Red meat for low-information Republican voters. Check out this clip and imagine yourself as one of these low-information Republican voters, a standard-issue, uniparty-right villager who is just beginning to figure out that maybe it's not a good idea to keep sending our money to Ukraine. It has consolidated all media into one state TV media arm. That's not democratic. It has threatened not to hold elections this year unless the U.S. forks over more money. That is not democratic. It has celebrated a Nazi in its ranks, the comedian in cargo pants, a man called Zelensky, doing it in their own ranks. That is not democratic. More facts for you that you won't hear from the mainstream in either party or the mainstream media. The regions of Ukraine that are occupied by Russia right now in the Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk, these are Russian-speaking regions that have not even been part of Ukraine since 2014, that other people probably couldn't name those provinces for you. Those are the hard facts. And so to frame this as some kind of battle between good versus evil, don't buy it. And I'd like the likes of the, the sharpest of the war hawks on Ukraine, Nikki Haley, to have some accountability and answer. Do you want to use U.S. taxpayer money to fund the banning of Christians? That is actually what's happening. They're using the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. They have banned them. The Ukrainian parliament just did this last week, supported by our dollars. And I think you owe it to the American people, Nikki, to at least this Mr. one time Ramaswamy, at least condemn, thank you. That's time. At least Mr. to condemn Ramaswamy, their banning you. of Christians. Mr. Ramaswamy, or else thank we're you. Out of both sides Mr. Ramaswamy, thank you. We are Ukraine, a country that bans opposition political parties, that has banned Orthodox Christians, 
and that is celebrating a Nazi in its ranks, the comedian in cargo pants, Volodymyr Zelensky. And he's right. You don't hear that from the mainstream in either party, and you don't hear it from the mainstream media. Nor do you hear about the fact that those lands are occupied by Russians and have been independent from Ukraine for years, that there has been an ethnic civil war being waged in those lands. And by the way, Vivek didn't mention this, but they've all voted for referenda, making them part of Russia. How come we're never told about those things? Imagine being the sort of person that had gone along with the Ukraine thing for the last 21 months, and then you hear that. And then you find out, no, actually, you know what? That is really true. Think about how that landed for all those people who didn't properly respect the fact that we are in a zero trust information environment. And then let's get to what I believe was the best moment from Vivek last night. Thank you very much. Let's go to uh, Mr. Ramaswamy now. One minute. We've talked a lot about foreign wars tonight, but we're in the middle of a war right here at home. It's a war not between black and white or Democrat and Republican. It's between those of us who believe in our founding ideals and love this country and a fringe minority who hates the United States of America. And I think it's going to take a commander in chief to lead us to victory in that war, who first of all knows that we're in a war. Second of all, can't be captured by the special interests along the way. But third is from the next generation, somebody with fresh legs to lead us to victory. I'll shut down the deep state. I'll declare economic independence from China. I'll keep us out of World War III and then revive national pride in this country. I also want to close with one message to the Democrat Party. End this farce that Joe Biden is going to be your nominee. We know he's not even the president of the United States. He's a puppet for the managerial class. So have the guts to step up and be honest about who you're actually going to put up so we can have an honest debate. Biden should step aside, end his candidacy now so we can see whether it's Newsom or Michelle Obama or whoever else. Just tell us the truth so we can have an honest debate. You got to love that. He just went out on a debate stage in an albeit fake debate in a fake primary, but something that people watched and said that Joe Biden is not a real president right now. He said that he is a puppet of the managerial class. I would suggest that his realness as president actually exists somewhere far beneath even being a puppet of the managerial class. But it is good that average Americans who don't pay a lot of attention to politics or who do pay a lot of attention to politics, so they think, but what they're really just doing is consuming a lot of television content. It's good for them to hear this as an acceptable public narrative. This is actually something that, quote unquote, serious people talk about in public. So again, there was no substance to be had last night outside of the narrative breaking done by Vivek Ramaswamy. He took a lot of publicly accepted narratives, information delivered from authority, believed with no justification, people misunderstanding and failing to respect a zero-trust informational environment, and turned them on their heads. He may have broken some of them irreparably. None of that suggests that he should be president or vice president or even be taken seriously in politics, but he did perform a certain 
role last night, and I think it's probably productive. I'm happy with the results of his performance, even though it changes obviously nothing for me in how I view him or any of this situation revolving around this fake primary. But that's the big takeaway. He did severe damage to the Republican establishment a night after the reported election results and the narratives that would have to come out of taking those election results seriously did severe damage to the Republican establishment. Things are going very, very, very poorly for the Republican establishment. Look at what they are displaying as the best among them. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, and Chris Christie. The entire Glenn Youngkin project is now a failure. Kim Reynolds in Iowa and Chris Sununu in New Hampshire, both backing that loser, Ron DeSantis, who lost a debate to Charlie Crist, lost three debates to these also rands, is about to lose another debate that he chose to have against a man who isn't even running in Gavin Newsom and loses every debate to Donald Trump, who's not even participating. The Republican establishment is a mess. They're losing in every way imaginable, and they're trying to blame it on Ronna Romney McDaniel so that they can move her aside and install their own person as the chair of the RNC. And even that narrative is failing. This is from today by Patrick Howley at nationalfile.com. Ronna Romney McDaniel claims on video that the RNC did not engage in the Virginia loss because Glenn Youngkin said the RNC wasn't needed. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna Romney McDaniel claimed that Virginia Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin told the RNC that his team did not need help from the RNC in the recent legislative and local elections, so the RNC did not engage with the Virginia Republican losses on Tuesday. She made these comments from the spin room at last night's debate to Larry O'Connor, a host on WMAL radio in Washington, D.C., who was doing a live stream for the pro DeSantis outlet town hall. Here is what Rana said. You know, the RNC's not a state committee. We're a federal committee. Right. Your candidates can take unlimited state dollars and your governor can take unlimited state dollars. And he actually said, we don't need you guys here. Larry O'Connor followed up saying, I just want to clarify one thing quick, though. The RNC had no involvement in these elections in Virginia per Governor Youngkin's request. Rana replied, we were told in the summer they didn't need us, that they had all the money and they were good. So that was a conversation. Now, that's strange, isn't it? For all of those establishment Republican media influencers, all those people to be shifting the blame for the loss on Tuesday night to Ronna Romney McDaniel. And again, I have no love for Ronna McDaniel. I'm not defending her. I don't care about her at all. She is an irrelevant character in all of this. Very likely stuck playing a role as the captain of the RNC Titanic after it has already hit an iceberg and is almost fully sunk. But what in the world are these people doing blaming her after she was told specifically in Virginia and probably other places that they didn't want her help? And again, we're talking about people who treat Ronna McDaniel as some proxy for Donald Trump because they say Trump supported her as RNC chair. And he may have supported her to some extent. 
He may have said, yeah, let's just keep Rana there because the RNC doesn't matter at all. But how about that? They are just striking out again. And how was this debate received? This is the Hollywood Reporter from today. TV ratings. Third Republican debate slumps. The TV audience for the third Republican presidential primary debate fell off considerably on Wednesday. The CMA Awards also narrowly avoided posting its smallest viewer tally ever. The Republican debate aired on NBC, but not cable siblings MSNBC or CNBC, and drew 7.5 million viewers on the network, Peacock, and other streaming and digital platforms. That's down from 9.5 million for the second debate on Fox News. These events have no draw without Donald Trump, and people generally, by and large, are not watching them. And yet, we are still told by major conservative influencers and the mainstream media outlets like Fox News that these are real debates in a real primary and that these candidates have a real chance of being the Republican nominee, what with Donald Trump's indictments and potential convictions. Then we get a ridiculous clown show from the NBC moderators and everyone on the debate stage about mostly foreign policy and issues that do not affect the lives of normal Americans, not a mention anywhere of election fraud and manipulation, No mention of BRICS or the problems with the American fiat currency. No mention of the emergence of the multipolar world order. They're just all reciting their prepackaged positions about what people seem to care about on social media. The entire thing is an absolute farce. It is a joke. And the only person involved who seems to realize it is Vivek Ramaswamy, who either intentionally or inadvertently ended up skewering the entire system and exposing it for the ridiculous and immoral waste of time that it is. And while all that's going on, Donald Trump holds a rally in Hialeah, Florida that was attended by thousands and thousands of people. Now, DeSantis supporters have tried to make a picture go viral today, a side shot that shows Trump on stage and the end of the bleacher section on Trump's right side that was very sparsely filled. They claimed that no one showed up at Trump's rally and people left early. Now, I have no idea when that picture was taken or when some people in that section may have left. It also could have been at the beginning of Trump's speech and they hadn't come back from whatever little break they were on for the bathroom or a water or to stretch. But anyone who actually watches the video of that rally last night or sees any of the pre-show activities like on RSBN or something, speeches by Roseanne Barr, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr., The entire place, including all of the bleachers, was packed for hours. They are all there to see Donald Trump. The idea that people aren't showing up for Trump rallies is preposterous. The DeSantis team has tried to sell this narrative that Donald Trump isn't the guy that he was in 2016. You heard Ron say that at the debate. They try to say he's old, he's slowed down, he didn't get the job done, and he doesn't deserve another chance. It's time for some new blood in there, you know, someone who can win a rigged election. 
And all of that, of course, is nonsense because Donald Trump is still quite clearly the leader of the free world. He is, as it stands now, the only significant figure in American politics and the only person of substance worth taking seriously, which means it's no surprise that he is constantly presented as a person of no substance who should never be taken seriously. And we are expected to see that as true, even when he is put in relation to a man wearing high heeled cowboy boots and a woman who thinks that her high heels are ammunition. But I just want to share a couple of moments from the Trump rally speech last night so we can compare seriousness between these Republican candidates and compare their visions for their potential future presidency. Assuming and pretending for a second that we can actually believe any of those five candidates on stage about what they would do. But here's Donald Trump assessing the situation. Just think of it seven years ago tonight, on November 8th, 2016, the American people delivered the greatest election victory probably that the world has ever seen. Probably so. The only one that's going to be more important is the one that's coming up in one year from now. It's going to be more important, I think. On that magnificent day, you didn't just crush the dreams of a person that we used to call crooked Hillary Clinton. We don't call her that anymore. We call her beautiful Hillary. Because we use the word crooked for the president because he's crooked as you get. You stood up and smashed the grip of the globalists, the warmongers, the open borders lobby, the outsourcers, and all of the liars and leeches who had been sucking the life and blood right out of our country for years and years. And for four great years, we dealt the radical left maniacs and special interests one historic defeat after another because we put America first. It's very simple. They weren't too happy about it either, were they? Every day since our 2016 victory, that was some year, the sick political class we defeated has been trying to scratch and claw their way back into total control over our lives. They are working so hard. It's actually all they're good at. They're bad at policy. They're bad at everything, but they're only good at that. And they're really great at cheating in elections, but we're not going to let that happen. They put you, me, my family, and our country through hell. But in the end, they will fail and we will win because we will never stop fighting to save the America we love. Crooked Joe Biden and the radical left Democrats are turning the United States into communist Cuba. Does that sound like a sparsely attended low energy performance by Donald Trump? Is he not the guy he was in 2016? Why is Ron DeSantis lying about Donald Trump to the American public? Why is his campaign totally centered around lying about Donald Trump to the American public? 
he has nothing else going on for him and neither do any of the other candidates. None of those people should be taken seriously at all. Donald Trump is the only person who reliably understands what exactly is happening in the world and has the skill set and wherewithal and motivation to actually do something about it. And we still get the narrative that he is not serious. He's not a serious person, as we so often hear in the standard issue villager chatter online. They're always telling us who is and is not a serious person. It's all just so ridiculous. At some point before they all drift off into permanent irrelevance, you might think they would take a pause and notice that none of their analysis makes any sense because they have to ignore the most important fact about what's going on right now, which is that Joe Biden didn't win the election and our elections are stolen. The only person who takes that into account is Donald Trump, which is why he's the only one who can talk about any of these issues with any sort of authority or confidence. He's the only person who deserves to be taken seriously because he's the only one who can muster a baseline level of knowledge and honesty about the most important issue. Here is Trump last night talking about our stolen elections. The second question I get is, will they do it again, sir? And you know what they mean. Will they do it again? Will they cheat again? Because they cheated like a bunch of dogs. Will they do it again? And we have the best everything. They're going to try. Look, that's all. You can't win elections when you say open borders, bad education, high interest rates, high taxes, tremendously big and impossible regulations, weak on every nation not respected by anybody. The United States right now is a laughing stock all over the world. They don't they don't respect our president. They respected me. They don't respect our president. They don't respect anything about us. And then you're supposed to win an election. They win their elections by cheating. That's what they do. That's the only way. You can't win an election with open borders. And I don't even care if they're liberal as hell. When you see people pouring in from these mental institutions and from jails, from Africa, from Asia, from all over Europe, and from South America, it's not just South America, who the hell is going to vote? They cheat like hell. And I will say it. I've been indicted for saying it. And yet they used to say that about me in 2016. The election was rigged. The election was stolen. We're going to put up a slate of electors against Trump. You know who did that? Hillary. Thomas Jefferson did it many years ago. And it's been done many times. But in 2016, they even tried to get me on Alabama, and I won it by like 45 points. They said he cheated on Alabama. I said I won it by 45 points. I must have cheated by a lot. It's a great state with incredible people. But they did the same thing. When you look at Maxine Waters, watch the way she talks. Look at Talib today, what she said, the mouth, the horrible things she said. Look at some of the things that they say. They want you to walk into that restaurant and knock the hell out of them, they said. Right? All of the horrible things they said, and far worse than that. And nothing happens. But if we say peacefully and patriotically, oh, that's so threatening. These people are sick. They're sick. 
And we're not going to let him get away with it. We're not going to let it happen. And it happened once. It's not going to happen twice. You know, we did much better the second time than we did the first. I say it proudly. We did much better the second time. You know, we won in 2016. And then we got millions and millions of more votes the second time. Never happened to a president. Usually a president will, if they win, they'll win with less votes than they got the first time because people get bored. You know, he's a boring guy. I don't think I'm too boring, but he's a boring guy. I got the largest number of votes ever gotten by a sitting president. And I got the biggest increase. There's never been somebody. I went from 63 million to, I believe, over 75 million. And that's been recorded by them, not by me. How about the real number, okay? How about the real number? Are we supposed to pretend that Donald Trump does not know the real number or something closer to the real number? Donald Trump was the president of the United States of America, the commander-in-chief of the United States military and the plenary authority on classification In the United States federal government, he had the best access to information of anyone in this country and quite possibly anyone in the world. He continues to say he has proof. He continues to say he is going to show proof and he has never changed his story about the elections being stolen. The people themselves have seen plenty of examples, plenty of evidence, overwhelming evidence of countless varieties. And yet people are still betting on the other side that no one is going to figure out our elections are stolen, that no one is going to figure out Trump won, even though over two thirds of the country already understand it to be true. Donald Trump's not relaying some outlandish conspiracy theories to a handful of people at a sparsely attended event because he just can't let go of the political power and he wants to get all the donation money five and ten dollars at a time from normal, hardworking Americans. What a ridiculous story that anyone believes that is only further proof of how much a person's judgment can be eroded based on the incentives and punishment structure within the party of false decorum. And because of the fact that they have to believe something within this zero trust information environment, people keep making the same mistake over and over and over and over and over again because they don't want to admit that they might be wrong about all of these things they just don't know at all. At some point, people are just going to have to make the conscious decision to wake up and accept that they were wrong. Because if they haven't already run out of time, they're going to do it real soon. And the stakes are real high. So let's leave on this. This is Donald Trump from last night talking about how this is the final battle. Because this race is not just about beating Crooked Joe, it's about defeating the entire rotten, corrupt, and tyrannical establishment right now that you have in Washington, D.C. Nobody thought we'd see this. This election will decide whether power in America belongs to them forever or whether it belongs to you, the men and women who make this country great, who make this country run. 2024 is our final battle. Stand with me in the fight. We will finish the job that we started so brilliantly seven years ago. We never had a country like we had just three years ago. The job we did, we did things that nobody thought were possible. One year left until this election. 
The future of America is to be decided, and in a zero-trust information environment, people are still accepting the official story within the central narrative about Donald Trump delivered to them by people who they know lie about everything. And those are the people determining for everyone else who the serious ones are. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social 
Getter and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!